Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Like, I just, I think salespeople are hard to believe sometimes. I guess maybe is the root of it, right? Like, we are, are naturally sort of distrusted, not believed. It's I think it's hard for prospects, even when we've done the work to build the rapport and build the trust, it's hard for them to always believe that we truly have their best interest at heart. And marketing can really come in and use that, I think, voice of the customer and almost be a second voice to sales that says, no, we like with this really is about you and making sure that you get the benefit, the value that you deserve, that you want. It's not about the salesperson closing the deal. What do brands like Warby Parker, Dr. Squatch, Vital Proteins, and Blendjet all have in common? They're increasing their abandoned cart revenues by over 10x with retention.com. Visit retention.com to book a demo today. What's up, everybody? I'm here with Leslie. I know this is a marketing podcast, but we love our partners in sales, and Leslie's one of the best in the sales realm, so I had to bring her on the podcast. So welcome, Leslie, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And I will say I'm a salesperson that has deep, deep affection for my marketing counterpart. So we're a good match. Could you describe how you got into sales and then we could just chat about our topic at hand? For sure. Yeah. Stumbled into sales, didn't want to do it, thought it was like, you know, all the bad things, right? Super slimy, super high pressure, like manipulative, con artist. It was a hard no for me, but I did want to use my college degree, like so silly, right? But I was, you know, I was young and thought that you still went to college and then used your degree. So I joined a business intelligence company in a sales role thinking that later I could pivot into more of a operations or a marketing role because that's what I went to uni for and just immediately fell in love with sales because I realized it was actually a profession that was deeply rooted in curiosity and understanding and communication rooted in helpfulness. So once I figured out that sales wasn't evil, if it was actually about helping people, it was, you know, I knew it was going to be my lifelong profession. So we talked a little bit before the show about how marketing should embrace the sales-led approach and then how also sales should have that deep affection about marketing. Let's like first dive into why you think marketing should embrace the sales-led approach. What does it mean for marketing to embrace the sales-led approach? Yeah, I think one of the clearest examples that I see marketing teams doing really well, we were talking a little bit about how sales often takes more of that one-to-one or more personalized approach. So when you see marketing come in to support on things like account-based management campaigns, which that is more of a sales approach, I think that that's closer to how marketing can have a greater impact of over-indexing on like things that we are certain are valuable and relevant to a specific segment of our audience instead of the traditional or historical marketing approach, which is creating one message that is usually very company-centric 
and then blasting that out to every single person in our TAM, in our total addressable market, you know, with without taking maybe the time we're putting on the resources to segment, increase on value, index on relevance. Yeah. So one thing that we also chatted about, so there's like two sides of sales, right? Like there's outbound and then there's inbound. So like, let's talk about inbound because it's more marketing right now. And then we could talk about outbound a little bit. But so a lead comes in that's pretty qualified and gets passed to sales. How should sales marketing be efficiently handing off that lead to sales? And then what should marketing do after that lead is handed to sales? Yeah. So my take is that they should do nothing. Although you then gave me a really good suggestion <laughs> immediately afterwards. But I think when it comes to to correspondence, the number one suggestion I have is that once somebody is in a sales-led motion, they are having a conversation with the company, all of that correspondence needs to come from a human, a human being that works at the company. Um, we want to make sure that we are not overlapping on comms and everybody listening has had like has heard that rant, right? Like our prospects are getting too much communication. They're getting this newsletter and this email from marketing and this sales approach. So I think part of it is just ensuring that we have like a single message going out. Like there's a bit of consistency in the message and one clear call to action that we're taking, you know, of course, the value based, the relative approach, but like making sure they know they're dealing with a human, not a marketing at or an info at email. And I think that that creates a much nicer experience for those prospects as they're engaging with our company. Yeah, I actually like reached out to a company just to test their funnel the other day. And like one of the first emails came from like a no reply, like when I filled out a form. And I was just like, why are you sending me a no reply? So what am I supposed to do? Just wait for the sales rep to like contact me? Like at least make it seem like it's a person if you're going to do it and tell like a sales rep because like no reply means, okay, I can't contact you until someone, a human gets to me. It doesn't, it didn't feel human at all. It felt very, stale process. Yeah. There's a company that I work with that started with a sales-led motion and then moved to a PLG motion. And so I was going through their automated PLG onboarding and it was coming from a no reply email. And not only did it feel like they didn't really care, right? Like there was just no personalization. There were real questions that I had that would have allowed me to increase the price point that I was was buying at, like it would have allowed me to move from premium to a paid edition much quicker, but I had nobody to ask because I replied to the onboarding email, not realizing it was a no reply and nobody replied. It, it went into the ether. So I, I think there's like also opportunities that are being missed to create those shorter sales cycles, to upgrade people to paid accounts, to create a more immediate and a deeper connection with our prospects that we can miss if we're not giving them a single point of contact with a clear message of what we want them to do in this conversation with our team. I think also one of the points I want to ask you is sometimes like, I think the problem that happens is that a lot of the time the lead that is handed to sales isn't even like ready for sales to take on. They're not educated and stuff like that. So what is the point that a lead should go to sales and marketing should be like, okay, I'm done with this lead versus the opposite where like 
Yeah, I'll go start with that that question. Like, when should a market be like, okay, this lead is qualified enough that it should go to sales? Because I think the problem a lot of what happens in a lot of organizations is we market teams hand people off that is are like just click something on the website and stuff like that, and then they expect sales to close that lead. So when is the right moment for sales to take over? For sure. Oh my gosh, so many debates, right? Like the MQL versus the SQL. Should sales dev sit under marketing or should it sit under a, a sales revenue leader? I think the basis of it, Daniel, is that so often when we decide what our scoring system to make something that, you know, MQL, SQL, it's very us centric, right? Like we created this white paper and somebody clicked on it. So that means that they love us. Um, and I think we can all acknowledge that's like so rarely, like rarely the case, like attending a webinar, it isn't necessarily indicative or like downloading the white paper, reading the case study isn't indicative that they have a problem that they are seeking an immediate solution for. And even if they are, I think one of the biggest gripes or one of the biggest disconnects is that folks are sent over as MQLs that are not decision makers. And it's not marketing's fault, right? Like they are given their scoring criteria. A lead hits whatever score it is, you know, 80 points. And that's that's what makes it an MQL. So they send it over. They're following their process. But there's a conversation that's missing across that entire like, customer commercial function of what a qualified lead is to sales in terms of product fit, timelines, decision-making ability, and how that needs to be reflected in the MQL qualifying process. And I think it most often comes up when, or at least for me, it's when you get the MQL that's been an MQL off and on like every six months for the past four years, right? And they never buy, but they keep downloading and they keep showing up. And it's, you know, I think some of those, like there's a lack of continuity in terms of what truly makes a good lead for the business. So marketing is doing what they are told to do. They're following their process and they're doing it well. It just isn't always what sales needs. Yeah, I have a, a theory on it then. I think the leads that should be handed to sales are the ones that have shown intent. And what I mean by intent, it means they've requested a demo, they requested pricing, they've requested something that shows that they are in a, a buying behavior. White papers and stuff, are they still in educational research mode? Some people, let's say like, if you're running an ABM motion and it's a key account and something like that, maybe. But I think like, the goal of marketing is to make sales easier, not the sales process harder. And the way to make it harder is to get more people to send sales, the people that are showing the highest intent at that point in time. So I think like if it is like a hand raiser or stuff like that, you could maybe hand it off to like an outbound team to send educational stuff, get that human touch, get that outside. But I don't think that marketing should hand off anything that hasn't shown the intent to buy because that shows that they're not ready for the product usually. And that means you got to do more education to get them to show that or something you've done wrong in the marketing process that happens. You know? And then I, I think that goes back to the whole like role of SDRs and where they sit between marketing and sales. Because if, if somebody has maybe not explicitly raised their hand where they should jump straight to an AE, that is that, you know, product expert that that has the domain expertise to get them into a proper sales cycle. Having 
a sales dev team that can bridge the gap with those more personalized educational pieces where it's not the messaging for marketing, which is maybe education on like the job to be done and that we offer a solution to that or, you know, sharing how we've helped similar folks in the industry, like getting that brand recognition and that credibility. I think once marketing has completed that and you do have folks that are engaging with the company, there is that recognition there. Like you've marketing's done their job, right? Like they've created the foundation of education. They've built a little bit of credibility, maybe a bit of FOMO. That's a perfect place for sales to, to come in and not be the only point of contact, but bl- like blur the lines between the demand gen and the lead gen functions where there is some of that organic, like, you know, people can come to us activity going on, but also some of the, you know, explicit outbound that is hyper-personalized, that is valuable, that is relevant to say it is not you in terms of, you know, you are a X title out of this type of company with this type of revenue. It is like you, Daniel, for these explicit reasons, you are the person that we want to talk to right now. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about like, I know we talked before about marketing, not being sending communication out to say prospects doing. And so that means emails, newsletters, bugging that prospect during the cycle. We also talked, I shared idea of just air coverage. I like to call it, just keep them top of mind with ads and stuff like that. I think there's other ways though, that marketing can support sales in this process. And it's not through like communication and stuff like that. I want to get your your thoughts, but like there's content, case studies, all that stuff that marketing can hand off educational pieces that can help sales in that sales cycle be better educating the process. So what are some things that you ask of your marketing companions or partners when you're in that sales cycle? What does a salesperson need to be successful when they're talking to a prospect? I have been really lucky to have some very strong marketing partners throughout my career. I also spent a huge chunk of my career in the like research, consulting, business intelligence space. So it's marketing in a marriage with product. Some of the most important things that I have been able to get from my marketing team, like I tested AVM for the first time in a company and they built me custom websites, like the dream, right? And they were custom websites that could be adapted once somebody entered the sales cycle. So, I mean, that's something I could never do by myself. Like um, amazing, incredible to be able to use their skill sets. Other things that they have done that have been hugely instrumental for me are engaging in voice of customer conversations. When I am trying to bring somebody across the line that is maybe in a, a region or an industry where we don't have as many logos, we're trying to penetrate something something new. And I have been able to go to my marketing team, my product team to say, I really need data on this or a case study on this or just some sort of depth of use case to help me bring this, you know, 100K plus deal across the line. And they've taken that and they've gone and had those conversations and then created the collateral that I can share back to this prospect. So I think there's this amazing opportunity for marketing to be able to engage with our current customers to partner with product and then synthesize it in a way that makes it like really digestible and accessible to that prospect and makes them 
like I just I think salespeople are hard to believe sometimes. I guess maybe is the root of it, right? Like we are are naturally sort of distrusted, not believed. It's I think it's hard for prospects, even when we've done the work to build the rapport and build the trust. It's hard for them to always believe that we truly have their best interest at heart. And marketing can really come in and use that, I think, voice of the customer and almost be a second voice to sales that says, no, we like with this really is about you and making sure that you get the benefit, the value that you deserve, that you want. It's not about the salesperson closing the deal. Yeah. One thing we did, did at service time, which I think um, was one of the smartest things we did was we used to hire people from the industry like as directors of customer advocacy and stuff like that. So they would be the people who would go with salespeople on the call and be like, hey, I was a former customer of Service Tide and like I, we were the same people. So it was like that trusted partner that you could partner with sales to be like, hey, this is a trusted partner. Usually like marketing teams, like good marketing teams have someone on the content team that understands the industry so well that you can usually bring them on some calls to help with like especially enterprise we're talking enterprise now not like s and b quick like five to seven day size sales cycle things enterprise stuff where you have people because they want to hear that hey i scaled my business with this i was at similar pain points with that they need that trusted partner and if you don't do that you could do the secondary thing which is find the customers that you have in your database that are already doing that, that are successful in your product, that are doing great things and bring, try to get them on the call to advocate with you as well. But I think one of the coolest things is that I saw a service tend to do was like bring people on from the industry to bridge that gap so salespeople didn't have to like always fight the good fight on call. Yeah, I've seen that as well. Actually, at the last company that I worked at before I, I left to do my own thing, that was a strategy that they took, bringing either members from our cab, from our customer advisory board on calls, or just like general folks from the industry. One of my favorite closing stories ever is that a lead that I had been nurturing for like three years, a uh, chief procurement officer at Toyota, who was not a customer yet, did the reference call for me for the CPO of AT&T that closed that deal. And Toyota was not a customer, but because we had, through the help of customer success, through product, through marketing, because they'd had so many trusted touch points with the organization, they knew the value. It just it wasn't the right time for them to join, but they like really knew the value and they knew it was the right time for this peer, their colleague, to join. So they actually did the reference call for me that closed that deal. And that was, I mean, sure, certainly like the sales-led nurture was important in building that relationship, but that relationship existed before I joined the company and a lot of it was owned by marketing. Yeah. Also, I want to ask you some things too is, so what are some things that you do? So now you have your own company. What are some things you do to help? Because the problem right now that a lot of organizations are having is like they have to be efficient with their sales cycle. They have to make sure that they close deals efficiently. And the way to do that is usually improving conversion rate in the funnel, which is either like lead, which is lead to sale, but usually a salesperson is involved in like, yeah, I mean, a salesperson is one of the whole cycle, but some orgs have SDRs in the middle of that sales cycle. So what are some tactics you've been using 
to help companies improve efficiency, improve conversion rate in the funnel today? Yeah, a lot of what we're doing is updating their copy, their LinkedIn copy, their email copy, their cold, you know, cold call copy. It's not good, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just still not very good. And so one of the things we were talking about off camera is that my like methodology is earn the right. Like at every point, every touch point we have with our prospects, with our customers, we should be earning the right to their time, to their attention, to their consideration, to their money. And when I think about tightening things up for my clients, a lot of it is pivoting the language away from the I, we, our, like very product feature dump focused language, which is what most sales copy still is. Like we can we can sort of pretend like it's not if we live within our like, you know, LinkedIn sort of echo chamber where everybody's an expert and everybody's doing all of the right things. But like that is not what is happening in the real world. Most sales copy is still what has like historical sales copy it has been. Very product focused, very customer focused, a lot of hello, I am your I am blah 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 name, your account executive at blah blah company. So one of the big pivots that I make is really getting rid of that I, we, our language and replacing it with language that is focused on things the customer actually cares about, which hint folks, it's not you or your company or your product. It's the either the problem they're trying to solve or the opportunity that they are trying to seize, right? You either have to help them get away from the pain, which is, you know, the, the go-to or access that gain. So that's a big one. And then the other big one is making it simpler, which might be a bit counterintuitive, particularly for marketers, because I think they tend to be copywriters that like maybe more flowery language, right? Like they really want to tell a a maybe a more extravagant story with their language. But the copy that we see performing best when it comes to sales sequences, either outbound or follow-ups, whatever, is really short copy short, simple sentences with simple words that are very, very easy to digest. Our customers right now are more frazzled and more overwhelmed than they've ever been. So writing really lengthy, complex emails, it just, it's sort of, you know, in one ear out the other, or in one eye out the other. That analogy doesn't make sense. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's if, if you're sending something that makes you sound smart, makes you feel smart, but it's hard for your prospect or your customer to digest it quickly, you're sort of already losing the battle before you've even gotten started. I think it's so, it's people try to complicate things so much, but sometimes the, sim, I wouldn't say this is, this is a hard change to make, but the answer is always simple and people try to get the hard answers. But like you just said, changing copy, that's like something you could do in marketing too. I think even like marketers, because they're in the sense, I mean, I always preach that like, simple and clarity wins over everything like the goal is to be understood in marketing it's not like you when people add that fluff and flowery things i think that fluff and flowery things are more for when you're trying to tell a story up front try to educate not when someone's already in a cycle that is already trying to buy that someone or someone doesn't have time to reach out to you they want to know like why are you reaching out to me what are you going to do for me how are you going to help me? Like, that's all I think about is me, me, me. Right. How long is it going to take until I actually get the benefit you're promising? Like, what do I need to do to get on the other side of this? But, I, you know, I think to your point, Daniel, is that 
many orgs are using copy that was written by marketing. A lot of a lot of folks that I work with, their copy was given to them by marketing. So it isn't sales copy, right? Like it is marketing copy and those two things feel different. And a massive difference between marketing teams that I talk to or work with that I think are like really exceptional and ones that maybe have some progress to make uh, is how much time they spend talking with customers. And most marketing teams have zero conversations with customers. And then they're the ones writing the copy that is supposed to like speak to this customer that they don't have a relationship with. So the great news for me is that I'm able to come in and like really affect some powerful change with some fairly small pivots to the, you know, the length, the style, the tone of the copy. But, you know, I think a lot of organizations, unfortunately, are still stuck in that rut where sales copy isn't being written by sales because there's nobody in sales that has been trained to write copy. Yeah, that's a big part too, is like people don't trick, like you, we, we train sales on how to answer phones, how to do a good script, but like one of the most important communications is written and it's not happening. I also think that, I think one of the problems that is happening, that's happened for years that I've seen is a lot of people just go find best practices on the internet and implement best practices. And the best practices on the internet are going to tell you what you were saying, like, hi, my name is X, Y, and Z. Like, I'm from this company. I do this and this. And usually best practices are what people have seen for years and years. So you can make small changes of like, and also like a lot of people, what they forget is they don't put themselves in the shoes of like a buyer and say, if I got this email today and I had... 30 meetings on my calendar, like Leslie has five different podcasts today. And I had 10 minutes to respond to this email. Do I have like 10 minutes to read the email, then 10 minutes to digest the email? Then it's no, I have two minutes to read the email, two minutes to reply, yes, no, I'm interested, like this kind of call. They don't have that time anymore. And if you add a bunch of fluff, if you add a bunch of best practices, if you add something that doesn't stick out in the inbox, you're just going to get lost in the void. Uh, shocking statistic. The data right now says that folks spend about 10.8 seconds scanning an email. So that means you have 10.8 seconds for them to choose to immediately delete it, save it for later, or action it. So if you are not writing your copy in a way that somebody can quickly make the decision to hopefully action it, but at least not immediately delete it in 10 seconds or less, like you're not going to get the reply rates or the click-through rates that you are hoping for because you are you're simply making the content too difficult for them to consume in that 10 seconds or for them to make a decision on in that 10 seconds. So it's like, you know, that's a pretty tight timeline. Like we really have to get to the point. And that means removing things that are introductions about us or a company, removing you know, those fake platitudes, like, I hope you're well, we need to get to the point. And like you said something so smart, which is put ourselves in the shoes of somebody reading the email. And if you get an email from a stranger, it's like, hello, my name is, my job title is, my company is, and my company does. It's a delete. It's an immediate delete. Yeah, and I also think like there's like steps before, like if you're doing cold stuff that you could build rapport without even selling first. Like 
the best salespeople I've seen, at least that try to capture my attention, is they'll like engage with me. They'll engage. I'll be like, I saw you do X, Y, and Z. Like they like kind of like hype me up as a person, and they like they, they show that they did their research, and then they'll go into be like, Hey, like they will just leave it at that, and then they'll come back another time and then say something like, You know what? Like you said something interesting here. Like I think I can help you with something like this. Like. Would you want to get on a call to like talk strategy about X, Y, and Z? And then it's like, okay, you've shown interest. You you actually care about me as a human being. And then now you're going to be like helping me with something, not like getting on the call to help me with a problem. And then usually the solution is your solution, but you're acting like you're trying to help me with a problem, which I think that's like the biggest thing. The, the most thing is like, hey, we do these cool things. Do you want to see it? Like... And like, usually, no, I do not want to see it unless it's like something I've already been looking at in the market before. So, Which data tells us only 3% of the people we reach out to are actively looking for the solution we sell. So that's not really where folks want to place their bets. But I think for anybody that is selling to a group of folks that are really active on social or, you know, doing webinars, writing blog posts, doing public speaking engagements, what a privilege for you. Like what an incredible way to blend those lines between demand gen and lead gen and really take a like social first approach. And I don't necessarily say social selling, like just social, like get to know the person, engage with them, listen to that podcast, read their posts, write comments, because you are increasing the familiarity. And there's a bit of reciprocity that you're creating there as well. So that when I do finally reach out to you to say, Hey, can I, you know, run this idea by you or can we chat through this to see if there's any fit? You know who I am. Like you know I've been engaging with your content for quite some time. You're you're probably more likely to say yes. A lot of us sell to people who do not live on LinkedIn like you and I do. <laughs> uh, but there are still plenty of ways to reach out to those individuals that are not generic that are not the like, oh, you breathe air. I also breathe air. Here's my unsolicited calendar link. Book it. And some of that might take a little bit more digging. It might be more rooted in like domain expertise, going and looking at the CEO statement to see what the CEO has said their priorities are for the year and then kind of backtracking to think, okay, well, the CEO's number one goal is growth. And this person is sat in finance. How is a CFO usually responsible for driving growth in this type of organization? Okay, it's profit margins and you know, whatever else it is. And then really speaking to that, where the look you're showing that you have a deep understanding of the world that they exist in. And that's kind of what we're doing with social selling, right? Like we're trying to be where our customers are having conversations. And if your customers aren't having conversations on social, fine, but like try to get that peek behind the curtain to figure out what conversations are happening that you're just not seeing typed out on, you know, LinkedIn, Reddit, wherever, so that when you communicate with them, you're saying something that matters to them. One question I asked here, and I'm going to flip it in a different way for you, but what is a sales hill you would die on? Cold calling is not dead, I think is the biggest one. Like not only is it not dead, but if you are not building at least two channels, preferably three into your outbound approach, and if you have three channels and one of them isn't cold calling, 
you simply are not doing what it takes to win in this environment. I love that. I also think, I just think the number one thing in just like marketing, and I even think like outbound is like the first goal is to get attention. Like the first goal is to get someone to like, you grab someone's attention and you have to be creative with cold calling. You have to be creative with email. You have to be creative with all these channels. But the first goal is to get attention. Once you got attention, then you got to be figure out ways to keep the attention. But people forget that part. It's like the first goal is like, hey, how am I going to get someone to grab their attention? Markers forget this a lot. Salespeople forget this a lot. But you have to get someone's attention first to be able to even sell them. And I think like creative ways, but also that's a great way to be like, okay, I sent an email and now I'm going to call. Maybe they won't answer, but I'll leave a voicemail that says, go check my email that I just sent you. So then they like prompt a- uh, That's exactly it. Yeah. So you just have different lines of community. I think one of the the ways that like one of the data points that people will call out to invalidate the efficacy of cold call is just like, you know, connect rates or response rates to a call versus to an email or to a social touch point. But what you said is that's all of it, Daniel. Like, yes, would it be great if our prospect answered on the call? It sure would be. But I am not making phone calls because I think every single person is going to answer. I'm making phone calls because I'm then going to be able to leave a voicemail and I'm going to leave it in that same like LinkedIn message structure of about three sentences that are short and simple because I'm going to assume that even if they don't listen to it, they'll probably scan it on visual voicemail. And the purpose of the voicemail is not asking for a call back. I have not earned the right for that call back. The purpose is to point to another touch, either that, you know, that LinkedIn, that video, that email, that direct, whatever it is, to point to another touch to increase the open rates, the reply rates, the click-through rates on those other, you know, those other touches on different channels. So it, it's all about giving out, like, of course, the attention piece that you mentioned, like 100%, but it's also about giving our prospects like meeting them where they're at, like giving them an opportunity to find us and reply to us on the channel that works for them instead of being the type of seller that's like, well, I only do LinkedIn because like LinkedIn's what I'm really good at. So I'm just only a social seller. And it's like, that's fine. And that is something that did work when the economy was booming. But like reality track, the economy isn't booming anymore. The concept of inbound has never been tested during a proper like multi-month or multi-year recession like inbound is still a fairly new concept all things considered which people like they don't get that like they don't get that helps but just popularize that concept you know in like 27 you know or t- like 2007 2008 like to just started happening around the last recession so i think you know like don't be afraid to build other muscles and test other channels And instead of making it about where you like to sell best, you know, maybe make a little bit of space to see where your customer is like to engage with you best. Yeah, I think the best point is like, be where your customer is. That's one thing. And then also allow them to have different ways to communicate to you. For like, for me, like, I will never call someone back, but I wouldn't mind communicating on like, I'm a more of like a, a text and like email communicator. Like that's how I communicate. But I know all some people who hate texting, hate emailing, and they would rather call. So there's like 
or they might want to go in a chat bot. Like there's like different ways, but also that's understanding your customer and understanding like how they like to buy. Cause some industries buy differently. Like some people, like I was in service design, plumbing. Most people are in their office, like, cause they go to the office cause that's how they run their plumbing companies. So like cold calling works because you're calling a company, like it, it works for that, that industry. Sometimes if you're in an industry where you're reaching out to marketers, maybe it's best to use communications that marketers like, which is maybe a more email, LinkedIn, those type of things. So it's just figuring out what your customers like to communicate, but also adding like you wouldn't put all your money in one stock and like write it out. Like that's like the most riskiest things to do. You have to put your eggs in a couple baskets to be effective. I just want to give you a few, one or two minutes to plug yourself. Where could people find you? Where could people find the infamous Leslie? This is the stage is yours. The infamous Leslie, huh? Um, well, certainly LinkedIn, just my first last name, Leslie Bennett. I'm a LinkedIn top voice right now. Like, oh my word, feels a little bit unbelievable, but grateful for it. Otherwise, my handle on most things is at B2B sales coach. So like Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, I just started a YouTube channel 90 days in, very exciting growth so far. So you can find me there. TikTok, I'm at sales tips talk, still growing that channel over 30K. How many people do you have on TikTok now? Not that much on TikTok, but my IG oh, just had 50K. So <laughs> so then we're, we're, we're climbing. That's a hard place to grow right now. 50K on IG is big. Yeah, we're starting to do YouTube and YouTube shorts, but I've always been like, I'm not the best at videos. So that's like also a lesson for people. Like, stick, like when you're starting, stick in the channels that you're great at, and then you can figure out the other channels as you go. Right now, like written form and audio form, I'm good at. Video, I need improvement. So I, I'm trying to dominate in those channels. And then when I have time to do the other channels, I'll start doing other channels. That makes sense for YouTube. All I'm doing right now is taking my cache of like, you know, podcast webinars, LinkedIn live speak, whatever it is. And I sent them to one of my freelance partners and they edited them into TikTok content originally. And I tested it on TikTok and it did badly. Um, so I had all this content. I thought, where else could I test it? Where else could I use it? And started YouTube off the back of that. And it's performing really well. So I, I haven't actually made any new content. For YouTube, it's completely been a uh, practice of repurposing old content. Smart. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's going well. And it's something that I can completely delegate to a trusted freelance partner. So it's a place I can grow without having to like show up as much as I need to show up on LinkedIn to grow there. But anyways, sales tips talk, YouTube at B2B sales coach, LinkedIn, um, I also created a micro community that I'm so excited about on Patreon for books, for business books, which is patreon.com slash business book club. So if people like books, reading or listening or talking about them, check it out. We would love to have you. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. This has been great. We had a great conversation. I'm excited. Everybody go check her out on LinkedIn. Top voice is hard to get. So, And also, she's crushing it with sales. And if anybody needs help with their funnel, which I know a lot of people do, hit up Leslie. Yes, please hit me up. I love that inbound lead flow. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks so much for listening. Keep tuning in to hear more great insights from the coolest marketers from around the world. If you haven't already, 
make sure to subscribe and follow the Marketing Millennials podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, I would greatly appreciate you giving us a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community. 